This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler. Hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. Toronto author-researcher Mike Sovey is standing by to discuss the legend of John Teeter. Uh, but before we get to that, let me introduce the boys in the band, as always. On the Flying V, Gibson guitar, my technical producer, Ian Robertson. On the other side of the glass, twisting the knobs in doodads. On the Rickenbacker bass guitar and occasionally the theremin, my story producer, Albert Benzel. Uh, please note... Uh, There is no HOA tonight, no Hangout on Air, so you'll not be able to stream this radio transmission live on YouTube. Uh, We'll try again next week. Having said that, uh, it would appear, I'm I'm hearing, that uh, last week's uh, YouTube video for this radio program has been taken down or is not available. Not sure what's going on. It may have something to do with the, the content of last week's show. You'll recall we interviewed Lieutenant Colonel Scott Bennett. Uh, about the funding of terrorist organizations through the Union Bank of Switzerland and the Clinton Foundation. Uh, Or it may have something to do with my conversation in the second hour with Marty Leeds uh, about Pizzagate. Hmm, I'm not uh, sure what's going on, as I say, but I'll let you draw your own conclusions. Uh, However, the podcast is still available, and you can hear that on my free app. Uh, iTunes, TuneIn.com, Stitcher Radio, and TalkZone.com. They can't take down the podcasts, uh, can they? Uh, well, at least not for now. Not yet. Anyway, uh, back in uh, early November 2000, a user by the name of Time Travel underscore Zero on the Time Travel Institute forums began a thread that stated he was from the year 2036 and began answering users' questions. The user later revealed his real name to be John Teeter, as we know him today. In his postings, he stated that he's an American soldier from the year 2036, based in Tampa, Florida, and he was assigned to an undercover secret government project to return to the year 1975 
where he was tasked with the uh, mission of retrieving an IBM 5100. He then stopped off at the year 2000 for undisclosed personal reasons. Uh, while in the year 2000, he sent a couple of faxes to Art Bell uh, that were read out on the air. And then his supposed mother was interviewed by my good colleague, George Norrie, on Coast to Coast. Then Teeter disappeared, as suddenly as he appeared online on the online forums, never to be heard from again. But the legend lives on. So this hour, we'll delve into the John Teeter legend and who may have been behind it. Of course, that's assuming John Teeter was not a time traveler and the entire episode was or is a hoax. Mike Sove has written nonfiction for the National Post, Variety, and HTML Giant. His fiction has appeared in McSweeney's and many other publications. His novels, The Wrath of Skrellman and The Apocalypse of Lloyd, are available from Montag Press. Also available, his new nonfiction book, Who Authored the John Teeter Legend? Mike Sove, how are you? Welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Oh, I'm great, Richard. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Who authored The John Teeter Legend? Uh, I was one of those uh, people listening intently in January of 2001 uh, when this mysterious John Teeter was on uh, with Art Bell on Coast to Coast, a program I, I'm fortunate to, uh, to host from time to time. Uh, but for those who don't know about who John Teeter uh, is or was, as the case may be, just give us a rough uh, a thumbnail sketch of John Teeter. Sure. John Teeter uh, was a man who came online in November of 2000, and he stayed around until um, March of 2001, and he claimed to be a time traveler. He said he came from the year 2036, and his mission was to uh, return to the year 1975 to get an IBM 5100 computer. And this was going to be necessary um, because it had a unique capability of being able to emulate between the APL and BASIC computer languages, and John said that this would uh, was necessary because Unix was going to time out in 2038. Now, what made John so significant wasn't so much that you know he made these claims. It was the depth and complexity of his story. Um, he was posting on two message boards. He was posting on Art Bell's uh, old BBS post to post, and another one called the Time Travel Institute. And so, some of the people he was dealing with, um, you know, these were time travel junkies, and some of these people had a physics background. Some of these people were into the philosophy of time travel. And time and again, when they asked John uh, fairly intelligent questions, John would respond with credible, legitimate-sounding answers. He would even respond in real time on IRC chat sometimes. So it's not like he had all this time to um, you know, consult an encyclopedia or whatever. And so I think the reason, though, that we're talking about him 15 years later is that while he did make some predictions that were wrong, he also made some predictions that have panned out. So even if John Teeter was not a real time traveler, what my book uh, looks into is if he wasn't, then who wrote these stories? Who had this information to be able to put this across? Right. And it's, it's also a very interesting sociological, psychological examination, remembering that in 2001, the Internet, or 2000 rather, the Internet was still young. A lot of people had dial-ups. They didn't have. We didn't have high-speed internet connections, uh, and so the idea that legends can be born—and you use the term legend rather than hoax—and we'll get into that in a moment. But the idea that legends 
were being born online is a very interesting area to to investigate. Now, I know you know I'm a, a long time uh, f- uh, aficionado or f- fan, if you will, of, of time travel. I just eat anything up to do with time travel, and I know you're the same. Um, now, but how did you sort of dip your toe into this investigation? Uh, you, you were were you listening to Coast to Coast back then, or or how did you how did you begin this uh, adventure? Yeah, I was I was a little young. I was I would have been seventeen at the time, so I wasn't into Coast yet. More into uh, you know going to parties, trying to meet girls, things like that. And uh, so I guess it would have been maybe I'd say two thousand ten, and just like you know most of your listeners, I'm into all these subjects: UFOs, Men in Black, you name it. And I was just kind of going down the YouTube rabbit hole, and um, I, I started listening to a Coast to Coast episode, actually. I think it was one that George hosted, and I started talking about John Teeter. And as they were talking, I recall getting, like, a shiver of excitement, like, wow, this is, this is legit, you know? Like, there's so many of these, um, you know, Fordian topics out there, and some, some have more validity than others. But as soon as I heard this, I thought, wow, this is legitimate. And as I was listening to the show, I started Googling. And then, of course, the post came up, and I was reading the post, and I was looking at some of the images that John Teeter posted, and I've been into it ever since. I think, you know, I'm a member of there's, – there's a small but thriving sort of John Teeter community online. They post on message boards like uh, Above Top Secret and Paranormalis and, of course, on Facebook. And so I interact with these people, and uh, whenever there's a new development, of course, it's very exciting. And, you know, that's one of the things my book – seeks to do is instead of just because the John Teeter story has been rehashed and it's been told very effectively both in uh, at least one book called Conviction of a Time Traveler as well as some very well-written articles. So what I sort of wanted to do was provide a compendium to that that would say, hey, this is what's been happening in the wake of the John Teeter story. And these are what some of the uh, role players involved and some of the suspected authors, this is what they've been up to since then. So I think if you take my book in conjunction with Conviction of a Time Traveler, which makes sort of a almost a lawyerly case that John Teeter was real, then you have a pretty good reference for the entire John Teeter story. So part of you initially uh, thought this has a real air of authenticity to it, this John Teeter story. Oh, definitely. And I still still remain on the fence. You know, I'm not setting out to debunk the John Teeter story. There's still, I think anyone who's serious about the John Teeter story, Oliver Williams comes to mind, uh, the webmaster for johnteeter.com. I think we all kind of waver. You know, sometimes we'll be like, okay, you know, these predictions were wrong. Uh, you know, this, the, some, of the, some of these people around it are kind of fishy. But then something will happen, like oh, another prediction will be borne out, and, and you'll go right back saying, hey, this, maybe this guy really was a time traveler. Mike Sove is uh, with us, the author of Who Authored the John Teeter Legend? Uh, how do folks get uh, a hold of the book, Mike? Yeah, it's on Amazon, so you just type that into Amazon. You can also go to my website, www.mikesove.com. S-A-U-V-E is the uh, the last name, S-A-U-V-E, mikesove.com. Uh, now, speaking of uh, sort of this air of authenticity, you mentioned that uh, when he was hosting and when he came on with Art Bell, he was talking about how he had traveled back to 1975 from the year, um, was it uh, 2036? in order to, uh, to find his grandfather's IBM 5100. That's now, right. I don't know, um, had the Unix system timed out by then? I mean, had that prediction come true that he had to get that because it was a necessary piece of, you know, equipment? Uh, to- yeah, the, the idea was, is that Unix is going to time out in 2038. And I believe 
I'm not a computer science guy, but I believe that still uh, may well happen, uh, similar to what was feared with the Y2K bug. Again, I'm not a you know a computer guy, but right. it basically boils down to the idea that there's a limited like Unix runs on seconds, like so the the uh, anti-lock brakes in your car, all these things still use Unix, and it runs on calculations based on seconds, and there's only so many permutations available. So by the time 2038 comes, they're all going to be used up. So like Y2K, they're just going to have to make some changes. But this is one area where, you know, computer people could say, wow, you know, this guy knows what he's talking about with Unix. But more significantly, the um, unique feature of the IBM 5100, a couple of years after the John Teeter story uh, had made the rounds, one of the uh, engineers from IBM came forward and he said, hey, I don't know who this guy is. I don't know if he's a time traveler, but there's maybe 20 people in the world who knew that. So this is probably one of the... That the IBM 5100 was a necessary... Uh, that it had a unique capability right. to um, emulate uh, emulate programs from APL and basic computer languages. Essentially, IBM didn't want their customers to know this because it would hurt their business. Ah, I see. Okay, so as you were told that only about 20 people on the planet actually knew this. So I guess if you're an FBI profiler and you're trying to find out who was who was John Teeter... Uh-huh. Uh, you know, that's a pretty good lead. Uh, yeah, it's, it's sort of its own little cottage in, in, industry of speculation who um, who might have been his grandfather. I know some people have looked into it without uh, too many leads. I mean, there is an idea that, you know, maybe more people know than this. Maybe it gets around IBM, but it was a, it was a closely guarded secret. Right. The other thing, uh, when he's uh, posting, he talks about his time machine, the actual device that he's using to... to to go back 2036 to the year 1975, and then he stops off in the year 2000, and then, of course, checks in online and with Art Bell. But he writes, uh, My time machine is a stationary mass, temporal displacement unit manufactured by General Electric. The unit is powered by two top-spin dual-positive singularities that produce a standard offset Tipler senusoid. Wow. <laughs> I mean, that's obviously, you know, the old, the old saying, BS baffles brains, or this guy really knows something. Yeah, I mean, I think what uh, one of my, it's another one of the things that being kind of put in the accurate predictions camp, he said that the, the technology was going to be developed at uh, CERN, and it was going to involve mini black holes or Kerr black holes. And as we now know, what's going on at CERN with the Large Hadron Collider, they're attempting to do exactly that. And I don't know, maybe you could tell me, like, Right now, I think CERN is pretty well entrenched in the public consciousness. So anyone who's into science knows what's going on at CERN. But do you recall in 2000, 2001, would just the average civilian have a sense of what was happening at CERN? I don't remember CERN being on the radar at that time. I could be yeah. wrong, but I, I do not recall anything about CERN. Now, because that I is looked 15 years ago. I saw they, they did start building the Large Hadron Collider in 1998. So it's not like it was information that nobody had. But it's again, it's another one of these things where John Teeter had... He was either a very intelligent man, or he had, or there's also the theory that it's a team, that maybe one guy is the physics guy, one guy is a, is a science fiction writer, another guy is, um, you know, a philosophy guy. Right, right. Well, uh, it certainly does have that air of authenticity, and uh, it captivated millions of people. Uh, Mike Sove is my guest, and uh, his book is Who Authored the John Teeter Legend? And uh, you call it a legend, not a hoax, an important distinction. And when we come back, we'll, uh, we'll sort of parse that term, legend versus hoax. And uh, that's all upcoming right here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away.
You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarr from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Poking holes in the darkness. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To see the light, call Richard now at 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. We are back with Mike Sove, the website MikeSove.com, S-A-U-V-E, MikeSove.com, and he is the author of Who Authored the John Teeter Legend? Uh, this time traveler uh, who started posting online uh, back in uh, 2000 and, uh, of course, uh, was talked about frequently on, uh, on Coast to Coast AM with, with Art Bell and then later with uh, George Norrie, uh, and then sort of disappeared as quickly as he arrived on the scene. And so the, um, the, the difference between a legend and a hoax, because you're not out to debunk this story, uh, but, but what is the difference? No, I'm not. And uh, just a quick word on debunking. I think that's one of the, my motivations in writing the book. I find when people are dismissive of the story, they'll just look at the very surface and they'll see, okay, he predicted a civil war in 2004. That didn't happen. He predicted that Russia was going to nuke the U.S. and that didn't happen. Case closed, right? But they don't go beyond that. They don't look at the, the depth and complexity of the story. So... Basically, I have a quote in my book from a folklore professor, and he defines a legend as something that's believed to be true by some, false by other, or both or neither by most. And I think that pretty well encapsulates what the John Teeter story is. It's, you know, for some people, like I said, it's not even doesn't even register. Like uh, there's a Skeptoid podcast where it's it's debunking it, but all the entire podcast is just saying, how could anyone believe this? It doesn't even get into any of the elements of the story. Right, right. Well, let's talk about some of the other predictions. You mentioned that he did predict there would be a civil war, uh, and um, uh, was that in 2006 or 2004? He talked about there would be no more Olympics after the year 2004. Yeah. Um, but what were, what were some of the predictions he made that, that did come true? Well, I like to put his predictions in two categories. There's one category where a talented futurist or just someone with an eye towards trends might have been able to predict. These include um, a, a prediction of where he describes something very similar to YouTube. Someone asked him about the entertainment industry, and he said, well, it's decentralized. People do it in their own homes, in small groups. or uh, And so, yeah, it sounded almost exactly like YouTube. And this was in 2001 when YouTube was pretty far on the horizon. Similar, he described, someone asked him what, um, what, our, what his Internet was like in 2036, and he said it's based on a series of independent, self-powered nodes that are mobile and can be put up anywhere. And that sounds a lot like our Internet. Mm-hmm. And then there's, the, there's a couple that are just bang on, incredibly specific. Um, and it should be noted that John said time and again he's, he would not provide information that would help anyone, um, A, avoid death by probability, or B, uh, profit. So people were asking him time and again for sports predictions and things like this. And frankly, he found it very annoying because, as you know, John Teeter came from this post-apocalyptic wasteland, and he's very mad at some of the people in 2000. But the one he did, um, the one that's bang on is um, somebody asked him at the time, there was a big marketing campaign for something called Project IT. Nobody knew what it was, but they knew it was going to be a piece of technology. And uh, John said, 
I guess he thought he could answer this one because it would just be a fun, fun one to answer. And he said, it's like a motorized scooter. And what Project IT would eventually yield is a Segway. Right, right. So how many people, this was being kept under wraps. I mean, it's possible he went in the, in the 30 or 40 seconds before he responded that he like somehow got in, like Googled the patent office, if the patent office was even online at that time. But it's very unlikely. So, and one thing that does bring up is a theory by a man called the Hoax Hunter, who's, um, he's a debunker, but I respect what he's done because he's put a lot of time and effort into it. And he has a theory that a lot of the people interacting with John may have been planned because he says they don't have much of an internet profile outside of those posts. The people, in other words, the people that were asking him questions uh, in these forums were, were set up. Yeah, or may have been. Right. And then... A little so, bit yeah. like Donna Brazil feeding questions to Hillary Clinton. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then here's another one that's a real, a real eye-opener. And so there's actually two faxes that were sent to Art Bell in 1998 before John Teeter started posting online. And this is fascinating to me because it could be, it could be two things. He said he was – in 2000, before he left for 2036, he said he was going to go back to 98. So who knows if he did something in 2000 and then returned to 98 and sent these faxes. But in one of the faxes, he says – and this is something that gives me the shivers still – there's two buildings missing in New York. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Uh, <laughs> so was there a certain point when, I mean, you're researching this and you're, you're, um, you're starting to think this, this could actually be true? I mean, was there, did you sort of get that tingle up your spine saying, oh, my God, this, this, this guy might be real? Yeah, as I said in the conclusion, I sort of felt like the harder I looked into this, I was going to come up with a hard answer. Who is behind this story? And I did come up with two people I think are the most likely suspects, and I still can't figure out what permutation. If they may be added in conjunction. These two people are um, Larry Haber and Joseph Matheny. I guess we can get into them later. Yeah, we'll but, come uh, back to those, but Yeah, because there is a, a chapter where you, where you talk about the suspects, and you, you include a, a quote from someone named Dan Scott, who's the admin of the John Teeter uh, Facebook group, and, and uh, he, his quote is, all roads lead to Larry Haber. So <laughs> yeah, we'll find true. out yeah, who Larry Haber is and some of these others. Yeah, but to finish answering your question, like I was saying, I thought, okay, I'm going to come up with a conclusion, but ultimately it left me as undecided as ever. I think, you know, the more I look into it, I don't know if, if one of these people are behind it. I don't know if maybe John Teeter was real. I think it's equally probable that one of these people, Larry Haber, Joseph Matheny, is behind the story, as it is that maybe John Teeter was a real time traveler. Uh, assuming that John Teeter wasn't a real time yes. traveler, and it is one of the suspects that you mentioned in the book, what would the motivation be? I mean, what was in it for them? They didn't. Well, did they profit? Could they have profited off of this? Yeah, here's the here's the like the million dollar question of the John Teeter story. If it was for profit, where are the profits? Oliver Williams, who I mentioned before, web, webmaster for the John Teeter website, he said that this Larry Haber, he's an entertainment lawyer, says if he's, if he's an entertainment lawyer trying to make money off this, he must be the worst entertainment lawyer in the world because no money has come. The only thing you might be able to point at is shortly after John Teeter disappeared, a book called John Teeter, A Time Traveler's Tale went up on Amazon, and it's nothing more than a collection of the posts put into book form. And at the time, it sold for, I don't know, but whatever was reasonable, probably, you know, 10 or $20 or something. But since then, it's gone out of print, which is a part of the uh, Matheny-Haber kind of 
rivalry that's going on now. It's gone out of print, and I looked the other day, and it was going for eight hundred and ninety dollars on Amazon. Even though it's the same post, you can just you can get them on my website for free. I have a PDF. Right, right. So, uh, yeah, I mean, if it was, if there was a profit motive, they, there's a lot of effort put in for very little return. It would seem like on the surface. Oh, for sure. I, I genuinely I've come to believe that whoever did this, if if it was not a real time traveler, it was a passion project more than anything. It was something they did for the love of the game. Could it have been some sort of a psyop? Well, that's possible, I guess. There is one thing that uh, that uh, kind of gives me the creeps is um, uh, Oliver Williams was on um, uh, Jimmy Church, Fade to Black with Jimmy Church, and right. he was saying that he can see the um, the uh, like the IP addresses of the people visiting his website, and he was saying a, a disproportionate number, like a very large number, are from like .nsa, .gov, .gov, .gov. So mm-hmm. a, there seems to be a lot of government interest in the story to this day. That's fascinating. Fascinating. Government interest in this. Well, there have been other so-called time travel uh, whistleblowers. Um, I, I don't know if you've, you've studied at all the work or the, the writings of Andrew Bashago. Yeah, uh, who, I'm, up on, I'm up on Bad Diego. <laughs> okay, yeah, Andrew believes or, or claims that he was part of Project Pegasus, this time travel, military time travel experiment, which goes back, I guess, to the late 60s, early 70s, and he participated in this as a child. And I've, I've interviewed Andrew a few times. What do you think of Andrew Bashago's story? Uh, I find it a little uh, less plausible. I find his claims are pretty fairly broad, and I don't. I haven't seen the t- the level of evidence like you see with the John Teeter story. Right. I think it's. A, I think it's a fun story. I don't know if I if I buy into it that much. I do think there's an interesting parallel though between him and and Larry Haber, because while Bagiego is out on uh, speaking tours and uh, you know I don't grudge anyone the right to uh, charge money to have people come see them. Larry Haber's not doing anything like that. Like Larry Haber entertainment lawyer who represents Kay Teeter, John Teeter's alleged mother. He's doing nothing to fan the flames, essentially. He just acts like, okay, this fell into my lap. It's very strange, and I, this is just how I'm going to deal with it. I'm going to do what the family tells me, and that's that. Uh, the, uh, the gravity distortion time displacement unit that Teeter uh, claimed he used to get from 2036 back to 75 and so forth, mm-hmm. um, there's a drawing of it. Is yep. a, a professional draftsman uh, put this together, and I mean, have you shown this to anyone that um, that would have, I guess, sufficient background? I don't know, theoretical physics that might be able to, I don't know, comment yeah, people, on whether this is vali- valid or not. I mean, there's been a lot of discussion about that, and basically, the the thing that comes back time and again is that all this stuff is theoretically possible. It's just that the technology doesn't exist. And that actually brings up another interesting case. There's a man named uh, Marlon Pullman. He's a Ph.D. Uh, he, his um, specialty is in Oracle, Oracle, which is like a type of IT software, I believe. Right. But he, he issued a patent based um, like verbatim, like copy and paste on John Teeter's time travel um, schematics. Now, of course, anyone can file a patent. It doesn't mean it's going to go anywhere, right? But I've looked at this patent, and it looks it's like above my pay grade, but it, it's very valid, and it's just, again, that the the technology doesn't exist, but interestingly, a lot of what John Teeter describes is a lot of what they're working on at CERN right now, so who can say? Maybe that uh, patent of Marlon Pullman's is going to really pay off uh, someday. Right, indeed. Um, We have a few minutes, and then we'll be up against a break here, but let's start to talk a little bit about uh, the suspects and and, uh, who, who may be behind the John Teeter legend 
And you, sure. you, you mentioned Larry Haber, this entertainment uh, entertainment lawyer. Yep. Uh, uh, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. You, just uh, lead us into that, that discussion, and then we'll pick it up on the other side of the break as well. But let's begin uh, now. So Larry yeah, Haber. Sure. Yeah, sure. So Larry's a Florida-based uh, entertainment lawyer, and um, he claims to represent uh, Kay Teeter. He's been on Coast to Coast, uh, you know, um, acting as a, as a mouthpiece for Kay, essentially. And Kay Teeter and, uh, is, you should mention, Kay Teeter is John's mother, right? Yeah, John's uh, alleged mother. Right. And um, so where Larry figures into the story most prominently is he has been the, the only figure to advance the story since it stopped. He's done two things. He's posted a uh, letter from John uh, to YouTube. Um, can't quite recall. It was a few years ago. I mean, I want to say like 2011, but I, I could be off. But anyways, he posted this letter to John, and it was essentially saying that uh, John needs to find his way back, and he needs this letter on YouTube so that other time traveler John Teeters can use it as kind of a signpost. And similarly, uh, the John Teeter Foundation website, it contains only one thing, and it's a short Excel graph, and it just has John, numbered Johns, and then uh, numbers with decimals, which is supposed to be the divergence. And this is a table that's supposed to allow John to return to uh, specific world lines, I guess. And so, you know, if Larry Haber is, at the very least, if this is all a complex game, Larry Haber's the guy still moving it forward to this day. But like I said, he's not, like, I'm friends with Larry Haber on Facebook. He is not, like pound in the John Teeter drum. If you ask him a question, he'll be polite. He'll say yes or no. I mean, he, he has a pull. This is just one of his clients. Right? right. He's not pitching any movie deals to to uh, Hollywood. You know, he's... No. Nope. No, and... Uh, it's fascinating. Yeah, and so, the... Uh, Let me just jump in here. Sorry, uh, Mike. Sorry, Let me just ahead. jump in here. We'll take a time out. We'll okay. come back and we'll continue uh, to discuss Larry Haber and some of the other suspects who may be behind the John Teeter time traveler legend. Mike Sove, my guest... Who authored the John Teeter legend? Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us. Different views make great conversation. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Question everything. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. And we are back with Mike Sauvey, the website MikeSauvey.com, S-A-U-V-E.com, MikeSauvey.com, and uh, it's also available on Amazon. Uh, The book is Who Authored the John Teeter Legend? All of you Coast to Coast fans will remember, of course, uh, the uh, just an explosion in interest in, in this John Teeter fellow who claimed to be a time traveler, came back from the year 2036, uh, went back to 1975 to, to, um, to uh, gather a, uh, or to find a piece of um, computer equipment that was needed in the future, uh, and then stopped off on his way back to 2036 in the year 2000 when he began posting online, the very early days of the Internet, uh, and then, of course, we, we heard all about him on Coast to Coast in January of 2001. And by March of that same year, he was gone. Uh, and so Mike Sove is sort of piecing this story together and trying to determine, assuming John Teeter is not a time traveler, who may have been behind the John Teeter legend. And we were talking about this entertainment lawyer, Larry Haber, who's really only the one, or the only one who's sort of 
uh, sort of out there furthering the John Teeter story at this point. Yeah, and that uh, what makes Larry Haber a suspect aren't so much the actions of Larry Haber, so much of the action of two of his brothers, and specifically really one of his brothers. I'll, I'll talk about Maury Haber first, because he's been accused by the hoax hunter. He's the, the um, uh, he's in charge of security at Beyond Trust, a cybersecurity firm. So this alone kind of makes him, he's kind of in that realm of tech. And uh, the hoax hunter has accused him uh, doing a text comparison. But uh, his other brother, whose name is Richard Haber, he's probably the chief suspect um, for a lot of people. A lot of articles say, conclude that someone named John Rick Haber is, uh, is the principal architect of the story. And it gets confusing because his name's Richard Haber, but he's been introduced to various people as John Rick. So for some reason, they have him as John Rick. Now, if there's a smoking gun in the John Teeter story, it was found by the hoax hunter, and it's that the, um, there's a P.O. box for the John Teeter Foundation that is now like the official P.O. box. You want to send the John Teeter Foundation something, uh, you send it to this. And that P.O. box, before it was uh, registered to the John Teeter Foundation, it was registered to John R. Haber. And the, the hoax hunter found this out, and there's no real credible explanation for why that would be. And um, so Larry Haber filmed a documentary for Italian television called Voyager, and they hired a private investigator. And that private investigator concluded that it was, uh, he called him John Rick Haber, even though his name's Richard Haber. He concluded that Richard Haber was the principal author of the story. He also works in IT, just like more basic IT, like admin stuff. And um, so th that theory would sort of argue that, okay, Richard Haber's into this stuff. He writes the story. His brother's the entertainment lawyer, so he goes to him and he says, hey, Larry, can you represent this story? You'd be the face of this story to the world. Right, right. Um, let's talk a little bit about K, K sure. Teeter. I, I, is there an actual K Teeter? Do we know? Well, all we know, here's the interesting thing. Larry Haber's never met K Teeter. He claims that uh, a law school um, former friend of his uh, acted as a go-between and set him up with K Teeter. He's talked to her on the phone, but no K Teeter has ever walked into Larry Haber's office. So we think there's a, I mean, that we can only take Larry at his word. And that that's what always gets so problematic to me because by all accounts, Larry Haber is a man of integrity. He's a professional. I can't understand why he would go about, you know, possibly dishonoring himself in this way. Why, you know, I don't think he could be disbarred for pretending to have a client that doesn't exist, but it certainly doesn't reflect, you know, positively on you as a lawyer, right? So, Whenever it comes down to, okay, it's all made up, I think why I can't really wrap my head around Larry doing that, just from getting to know him the little bit that I have. Right. If I, if I understand and remember the, the John Teeter timeline correctly or the chronology, he was born around 1998. He was, which, yeah. And he, uh, John which, said that yeah. his actual three-year-old self was there. He went and he knocked on his parents' door. And at first, of course, they were a, there was a little bit of cognitive dissonance, but then they were... Uh, I remember the coast-to-coast. -coast. Larry is acting as a go-between. He's responding. He's giving the questions to Kay. She's giving them to Larry. He's giving them back to George and Ori. Right. And her words were, a mother knows. So, yeah, and I mean, in John's post, he does talk about living with his parents. That's all kind of on the record. So if he, were, if he was born in 1998, that would mean that, that Kay Tidor, if she exists, is still a relatively young woman. Yeah, presumably. Hmm. And, of course, um, you know, your listeners should know John Teeter was up front that the name is an alias, so there's no sense. 
you know, trying to find a Kate Teeter because whatever her name is, that's an alias. Right, as well. that's an important point. Right. So, uh, so don't go bothering someone named John Teeter. <laughs> <laughs> well, when you, I know the interview is in your your Q and A with with Larry Habers in the book, but we're coming up on another break here. Let me just ask you quickly. I mean, when you when you talked to Larry Haber, was he believable? Yeah, he always he always is fairly believable. Like I always find he's credible. He all, he just kind of seems like a guy who doesn't have a ton of time to deal with this because you know his clients are paying him to do other stuff. He's not he's he's only getting paid for what he does for K. Right? He doesn't get paid to answer my questions. Right. But he will right. do it. He'll be courteous, but he doesn't you know have a ton of time to do it. All right. We'll uh, take another time. We'll come back. We'll talk about another suspect, Joseph Matheny. Could he be behind? Could he be the author? of the, uh, the legend of John Teeter. We'll be back with author Mike Sove when The Conspiracy Show continues right after this. Shaking the world and seeing what falls. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. The truth will set you free. But first, it will really tick you off. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. We are back with author Mike Sove, who authored the John Teeter legend, available at Amazon and also uh, through Mike's website, mikesove.com, S-A-U-V-E.com. So another uh, possible suspect behind the John Teeter legend is one Joseph Matheny. Tell me about him. Yeah, well, Joseph actually came forward to take credit for the story on uh, the Project Archivist podcast. And if anyone has the bona fides to have written the story, it's Joseph Matheny. Because not only in, so there's sort of two Joseph Matheny's. There's the professional Joseph Matheny, who is kind of a big wheel at Netscape and Adobe. And then there's the alternate, alternate reality gaming guru, Joseph Matheny. So he was behind an alternate reality game called Ong's Hat, which... Um, bears a, a strong resemblance to the John Teeter story in many ways. And um, if uh, I'm not sure if, if your listeners would be familiar with what an alternate reality game is, but it's essentially using the real world as a platform and using different forms of media to deliver the story. And players can become involved. So if you and me are engaged in on, Ong's Hat narrative, what I contribute moves the story in one direction. What you contribute may move the story in a different direction. So, yeah, he came forward to say um, that he was behind the story. And the problem with that Project Archivist podcast is the hosts are they're very, they're clearly um, very fond of Matheny. They don't push him very hard. And they're kind of having a laugh. Like, look at how dumb all these people are for believing this simple hoax I put forward. But there are a lot of aspects to what he claims that are the dude sort of ring true. I mean, he had the sort of peer group to do this sort of thing. When right. you look at some aspects of Ong, Ong's hat. Um, it does deal with quantum physics and uh, parallel universes. And um, the interesting thing about him is, in that interview, he claims that uh, <clears throat> it's unclear whether it was him or whether it was one of his cohorts, but they, they thought it was great that this was taking off. There's a there's an anime called Steins Gate that features John Teeter. They thought that was great. But when they saw the John Teeter time traveler's tale, they didn't like that, and they, they told... Haber, you get that down off Amazon now. And that's why Joseph Matheny claims that's why the book is no longer on Amazon, because he said to Larry Haber, no, you know, you're taking this down. So 
and I've asked Haber that, and Haber says, no, never heard of the guy. So right away, so there's a clear conflict between these two stories, like the the Larry Haber narrative and the Joseph Matheny narrative. Right. But, uh, yeah, so he, he claims he's behind the story, and the really interesting thing, and he doesn't really play this up, but it's, it's what gave me a pause, is that there is actually a reference to Ong's hat in the post. One of the posters says, watch me pull a rabbit out of Ong's hat. It's uh-huh. completely... It's completely devoid of context. It's, they weren't talking about Ong's hat. So I was thinking, well, hey, there it is. But then I asked him, and he just said, oh, no, that's just, you know, one of the people just happened to post that. It's a coincidence. So he didn't want to play up what I, what struck me is like his, the one piece of very hard uh, proof. Exactly, right. So would he, at this point, would he be your number one suspect? Well, in the, in the final pages, I kind of say there's all these permutations that might happen. It could be... He did write the story, and then Larry Haber hijacked it to represent the story. It could be he wrote the story and hired Larry Haber, and the whole thing about calling him out is just a ruse. It could be that he wrote the story and had a third party hire Larry Haber. So Larry Haber is unwittingly representing Joseph Matheny's creation. It's like these Russian nesting dolls. You open one, (laughs) and there's another one inside it. Yeah, exactly. So I find it, see, it's hard to discount either of these guys entirely. So I feel like there has to be either one of them is lying or um, – and that, the thing about Joseph Matheny is he's kind of uh, – he likes being chaotic with the truth. Like even with Ong's hat, up until um, it finally came out, okay, this is Ong's hat. Some books came out explaining what it was. He would deny in interviews that it was even a game. So he's kind of like a, the archetypal trickster, I think. Uh, there's a book written about him, I believe, in the book. That's how the author describes him. Right. Right. Um, we come to uh, another suspect, Temporal Recon, which is a pseudonym used by um, another author, an anonymous author. Tell us about Temporal Recon and why he's yeah. a suspect. Temporal Recon wrote the book I mentioned earlier called Conviction of a Time Traveler, and it's a great book. I'd recommend, you know, if you're buying John Teeter books, buy mine, but also buy that one because it's very, it's basically all, all of the arguments for him being real are very concisely and uh, eloquently expressed in that book. So, yeah, and Temporal Recon is very well-versed in time travel and very defensive of the story to the extent that almost like an author might want to defend his work, you might say. Right, right. And so, and he also shares some characteristics with John Teeter. I find I'll, I'll engage with Temporal Recon in uh, Messenger chat, and I find he has the same ability that John had of using sort of sleight of hand to move away from things that, he doesn't wish to discuss and kind of bringing you back around to his point of view. So he also shares uh, some of John's. John had a lot of um, anti-government leanings. Uh, he was a constitutionalist right. and a te- temporal recon in his uh, his own post that he shares those views. So I could definitely see there's also a tie between temporal recon and Joseph Matheny. So temporal recon posted a blog and it had the word incunabula in it, which is uh, which means basically like an ancient pamphlet or, or script. And the post had nothing to do with ancient pamphlets or scripts, but the subtitle of Ong's hat is Journey Through the Incunabula. Yet time and again, he denies knowing Joseph Matheny. Mm. So it's a pretty bizarre coincidence. So certainly if you want to go the Joseph Matheny route, then I'm inclined to believe there's some connection between Matheny and Temporal Recon, although Temporal Recon denies this uh, time and again. So, John Teeter was a constitutionalist. Did you ever consider as a suspect Senator Ted Cruz? (laughs) 
Well, he did. Didn't his father try to uh, kill Kennedy? So maybe <laughs> that's right. Apparently, <laughs> and, you know that brings up a very funny uh, something that was posted on 4chan, sort of semi-seriously, that Donald Trump is actually John Peter. Uh-huh. Because the, the silly part is that Trump had all this, you know, like freakish good luck in the election. Like he seemed to everything that could have fallen into place for him did. He threaded the, the needle. Yeah. Is, the other thing that lends it a, a touch of validity is apparently uh, Trump's uncle, John Trump, was at MIT uh, when Tesla died, and he inherited a bunch of Tesla's papers. So that was sort of the jumping-off point for ah. this kind of fun theory that uh, John, you know, Trump uh, is a time traveler. So maybe there was another theory I saw that uh, Trump has actually saved us all because Hillary was going to lead to World War III, so Trump had to go into the future, come back, fix everything for us. That's fascinating. His uncle, <laughs> yeah. his uncle John was at MIT and inherited some of Tesla's uh, technology. That's fascinating. I didn't yeah, know I that. Yeah, I didn't know that. I was, I, I, it was quite fascinating. He always, Trump, I remember in the election, he would talk about how smart his family was. So I guess that's just one more smart uh, member of the Trump family. There you go. Mike Sove, author of Who Authored the John Teeter Legend, available at Amazon and also through his website, MikeSove.com, S A U V E. Dot com, MikeSovey.com. So that brings us to another suspect, uh, Oliver Williams. Yep, uh, Oliver Williams, um, and we, we actually have Oliver Williams to thank because he archived all the posts uh, shortly after uh, they were made and keeps them up on his website, uh, johnteeter.com. And the Art Bell post-to-post uh, board actually became corrupted. So if it hadn't been for that, we wouldn't even have the, the bulk of the John Teeter posts. But, uh, yeah, much like I would mentioned, Temple Recon kind of sounds like an author defending his story. I really get that vibe from vibe from Oliver Williams. I get the sense that, you know, when you hear him on radio interviews, he's kind of like the de facto spokesman for the John Teeter story. He's, he's regularly been on Coast. He's been on Jimmy Church. And uh, he's very – he knows the details inside and out. Like, I've been working on this for a while, and I, I don't know – I don't have the encyclopedic recall that um, – that Oliver Williams does. Like, I, I have this feeling that he knows almost every post by heart, right? Right. So that, that alone kind of makes him a suspect. And then the hoax hunter has actually accused him of being in line, maybe because his website uh, sells a little bit of merchandise. But I don't really begrudge anyone selling it. Like, you know, you're selling a few John Teeter mugs or something. I don't think Exactly, yeah. Yeah. What about the hoax hunter himself? Yeah, the hoax hunter is fascinating because he's, um, he's a hard worker. <laughs> Give him that. Uh, some of his, his findings aren't as credible as others. The one I find kind of dubious is um, he accused, not Richard Haber, but Maury Haber, the guy who's the cybersecurity guy. He accused him based on his text comparison. It was pretty dubious. It was like they both used words like infrastructure. You know, I'm pretty sure you can take anyone's writing. <laughs> that is a little bit of a stretch, yeah. Yeah, but the, the big thing he found, like I mentioned earlier, was that P.O. box. So that, a lot of people connected with the John Teeter story, like this woman, Pamela, who... Um, she interacted with John more than anyone. For her, that P.O. box just sealed the deal. He also uh, did uh, that, which must have taken a lot of work. He basically took everyone who interacted with John, and he, and he looked for those screen names being used on other parts of the Internet. And I think he boiled it down to about 12 people he could identify as, like, real-life people out of maybe, like, 80-odd people that were interacting with John. So the whole Hunter... Um, yeah, done a lot of work, and I think he's kind of stepped back a bit. I think he feels like he's proven his case and that there's nothing more to be said. It's interesting because Temporal Recon, who has the diametric opposite opinion that John Teeter was real, he kind of feels the same way. Like, he doesn't have a lot of patience for, you know, trying to convince people. He feels like he put all the evidence out there, and now there's nothing more to say. 
Uh, I want to talk to you about um, others uh, who have been floating out uh, out there uh, who, who have made claims to be uh, John Teeter. There's um, they, just before he passed away, uh, Bob Mitchell, who's, who uh, was uh, a colleague. Uh-huh. I, didn't, I didn't know him that well, but he he died just after, just soon after he and and Jason quit. Yeah. Um, released disclosed chronicles of John Teeter the second. Yeah. Oh, Tell I'm us a little bit. He, yeah, about John Teeter the second. Bob died. I'd, I'd I'd heard that episode uh, of when they were on Coast to Coast talking about that. Uh yeah. Unfortunately, I don't um I don't really buy that John Teeter's claims. I mean, I'm not. I haven't spent a ton of time looking into it because I, I felt I was able to dismiss him pretty quickly. Uh, I think what I find a little bit galling about that guy's claims, actually, are that he says the original John Teeter was a fraud, I think I've heard him say. And so it just kind of seems like he's co-opted the John Teeter name, and and he doesn't seem to even know the original John Teeter story particularly well. And I really think it just speaks to the hunger there is for John Teeter content, that someone like this who isn't really doesn't really have a lot of validity it's still getting you know a lot of play out there just because people want to hear anything related to john teeter really right so and i believe like some of the i think this is there's been a few on facebook but i think this is the guy i believe he does sell merchandise and unlike oliver williams with him i may be a little more suspect when you just start calling yourself john teeter and then you start selling stuff right after so i'm I'm pretty skeptical of him right now Talk to me about the phenomenon of of this legend surviving. Here we are, fifteen years, and and I mean we don't have a lot of time here, but you know people don't realize. I mean how difficult it is to start a rumor and have it persevere over years and years and years. What is it about this John Teeter legend and the early days of the internet? Why did it all come together to produce this remarkable, enduring story? I think it's just because it's such a good story. It's so it's well written. That's why. A lot of people who think there was like a consortium behind it think that one of the people was a science fiction author. One of the um, comparisons, there's actually a few elements from a book called The Last Babylon. Um, they share a few plot elements about the post-apocalyptic uh, side of things. And um, so I have read, I've actually heard speculation that the sci-fi author David Brin might be behind the story. Uh, I don't know what, what that's really based on, but um, yeah, for me, it's the storytelling. It's really, it's really is that, and it's. I think it's also that there's a little bit for everyone. Like I'm not a math physics guy, but if you are, there's a ton of juicy stuff to chew on there, right? Right. So I love, I love the post-apocalyptic stuff. I love the philosophy of time travel stuff, and that's what you know keeps me interested. But if you were, you know, if you are at uh, MIT or something, and you're and or, you know, say you're like into uh, Michio Kaku, Brian Greene. Mm. Interestingly, when they speculate about time travel, they sound very similar to John Teeter. Ah, that is interesting. Well, Mike, uh, this has been a fascinating hour. I, I enjoyed our conversation immensely. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, Richard. MikeSovey.com, and the book is Who Authored the John Teeter Legend? My website, strangeplanet.ca. That's your portal. It's not a time machine, but pretty close. And uh, please visit that. Say hello on Twitter at Richard Serrett. And as always, follow the truth. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Live from Toronto, Canada, Earth, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. 
Thanks for inviting me into your home, long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' basement, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. A special hello to all of you listening in on our flagship station, Zoomer Radio, here in Toronto, AM 740 and 96.7 FM. Hello to all of you listening in on one of our growing list of affiliate stations from Alaska to Lubbock, Texas. Howdy to all of you catching this program on our podcast at Stitcher Radio, TuneIn.com, iTunes, and TalkZone. And of course, those of you listening via the Zoomer Radio app and the Conspiracy Show app, both free downloads. However, and wherever you're listening, I bid thee the warmest of welcomes, and I thank you for your fine company. Uh, Rosemary Ellen Guiley, our paranormal investigator, is with us for the full hour. She's coming up next. Now, she normally joins us at this time every month for our Paranormal News Roundup. But tonight, uh, this morning, she's here, as I say, for the full hour to discuss her new book, which she has co-authored with John Zaffis. And that book is Chock Full of Cases Involving Demonic Possessions. Demonic Hauntings, True Stories from the John Zaffis Vault. Uh, a quick programming note, next week on the show, uh, Black Ops, Aliens, Spirits, Bigfoot, and Our Untold History uh, with Ian Patterson. Uh, plus, Michael Fitzhugh Bell returns to the program to discuss electronic harassment and mind control. Leading paranormal experts John Zaffis and Rosemary Ellen Guiley plumbed the depths of bizarre phenomena involving demonic spirits, the restless dead, demon boxes, gin, 9-11 World Trade Center, disaster relics, and much more. They explored haunted homes and landscapes teeming with spirits and entities who pester and terrorize both people and animals and defiantly refuse to let go. In addition, the authors discuss exclusive, never-before-told stories deeply personal to John Zaffis about urgent messages he has received from his famous demonologist uncle, Ed Warren, who is on the other side. What is Ed saying about John, his work, and perhaps even the future of demonology? Well, we're going to discuss all of that right now. Rosemary Ellen Guiley is one of the leading experts on the paranormal with more than 50 books published by major houses on a wide range of paranormal spiritual and mystical topics, including nine single-volume encyclopedias. Her work is translated into 15 languages, and as I say, she is the co-author, along with John Zaffis, of Demon Haunted, True Stories from the John Zaffis Vault. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, how are you? Well, I'm doing well, Richard. I had a real busy year, finally wrapped up my last event in November, and now I'm into a writing phase for much of the winter. Wow, wow. You just keep churning out some incredible uh, product, and uh, now the latest is Demon Haunted, True Stories from the John Zappas Vault. This is your second book with John. Uh, Two years ago, you wrote Haunted by the Things You Love. Uh, For those not familiar with John Zaffis, who's been described as the godfather of the paranormal. He's got kind of an interesting pedigree. Tell me about uh, John Zaffis. John is the nephew of Ed Warren, and Ed Lorraine Warren are two of the most famous demonologists in modern times. Ed now has passed over. He died in 2006. But Ed and Lorraine did a lot of sensational cases, and they uh, made artful use of the media. They worked on the Amityville case, and... Uh, some other very high-profile cases. 
Um, they were both quite knowledgeable. Ed was very knowledgeable about the paranormal, about demons and, and uh, magic, and he imparted a lot of his knowledge to John. John worked with them for uh, quite a few years before he went out on his own, and uh, he has been on his own for quite some time and um, has taken on uh, demonology uh, cases, does a lot of paranormal investigations, and he's really earned that title of Godfather of the Paranormal. So Ed was his blood uncle, but they treated John sort of as, as their son. So he became, I guess, uh, their, their, their apprentice and uh, his successor. Yes, that's right. Uh, Ed and Lorraine had a daughter, but, um, you know, Ed treated John like his own son. And um, John was very close to him for most of his life. Ed suffered uh, a stroke and uh, passed away. And uh, we, we talk about Ed a lot in this uh, particular book. Now, Ed and Lorraine's work has carried on with a, a film franchise, and uh, some of their stories that they published in books have been turned into films. Annabelle was very successful. There have been two movies called The Conjuring. Uh, and uh, Ed's daughter and uh, Ed and Lorraine's daughter and her husband are continuing that franchise, and John is developing his own work. What's the difference between a demonologist and, and I mean, you're one of the world's foremost paranormal researchers, but what's the difference between what you do and a, and a demonologist? A demonologist is someone who uh, focuses on cases involving demons, and that would be uh, oppression, uh, possession, uh, cases that would need exorcism. And there is a crossover in the field. Uh, I take on many uh, demon and, and gin cases. Gin are very similar to demons. And so in that respect, uh, I'm a demonologist as well. Uh, and I studied uh, demonology, the history and lore of, uh, of demons. And uh, I, the difference is that I don't focus solely on them. Uh, John doesn't focus solely on them either, but I would say the, the bulk of his work has involved uh, these kinds of negative cases. Of course, people who uh, uh, will be familiar with John Zaffis's uh, sci-fi channel a television show, uh, the, the Haunted Collector, and he has a, a vast storehouse of haunted possessions, dolls and clowns and just about any object. Uh, but what here, this is, you're sort of um, honing in on something more specific. I mean, what do, you, what do you mean by demon haunted? This was a term that we deliberately chose. Uh, for, first of all, um, it, it is uh, to pique the interest of the audience, and scary things do interest people. But so many things literally are demon-haunted. And in, in our first book, Haunted by the Things You Love, we focused on objects. And as you mentioned, Richard, uh, John has spent a lot of time um, working with objects that have acquired negative spirits for one reason or another, and they've caused a lot of problems. So we featured objects. And in uh, the second book, we wanted to broaden that out to uh, haunted people and haunted land, as well as objects. And it's also part of our educational push, too. We have educational material besides the cases and stories in uh, both of the books. And uh, in, in the West, the, the term demon uh, usually uh, conjures up an image of something uh, utterly evil, 
that's uh, being working for Satan, and uh, this uh, entity is, is trying to destroy you and steal your soul, when in fact that's really only part of the demonic realm. Um, elsewhere around the world, and also uh, going back to ancient times, views about the demonic realm were much broader. They involved uh, a big range of tricky kinds of spirits that could be maybe just pranksters uh, and even benign entities that would interfere, however, and cause some upsets to the out-and-out malevolent uh, terrorists that we associate with the satanic sort of entity. And so a lot of these cases don't involve uh, entities that, that we could pin down as evil, per se, but they're malevolent and they're hostile, and they upset, they create chaos and cause problems. So um, that was uh, part of our reason for choosing the title Demon Haunted, and that it could be applied to a much broader brushstroke than um, uh, just objects. All of the uh, the cases, um, that at least those that involve uh, objects, uh, are they all part of John's Museum of the Paranormal, his, his sort of his personal collection that's on his property? Uh for the most part, yes. Uh, in Haunted by the Things You Love, everything came from John's museum, and he has, um, well, just on display, hundreds of articles, <clears throat> and he's got uh, hundreds more stuffed away in boxes. He's probably uh, got thousands of, of objects that he's collected for more than 30 years. In Demon Haunted, um, we have a mix of John's cases, some of my cases, and then we included a case from a paranormal uh, researcher friend of ours. Um, the object itself is not in anyone's possession anymore. It's buried in the earth because it had a negative spirit attached to it. But uh, this is an individual that's worked with both me and John, and it, it was a very dramatic story, so we decided to include it in the book. Well, which one is that? Let's. Can we begin with that? Oh, absolutely. It's a great story. It's called uh, The Thing in the Stone Egg, and it involves a young man named Justin Spurrier who lives in the Midwest. And uh, this haunted egg was found in a house that he bought, um, and uh, it came with all the furnishings in it. It had been owned by a very religious family from Mexico, and um, kind of the creepy thing about it was the husband had died suddenly, and the wife had left a lot in the house as kind of a shrine to him. And we've run into this before in um, ha haunted places uh, where uh, a family member dies and usually a bedroom is turned into a shrine and it acquires, uh, you know, a kind of a heavy uh, energy to it. But they had moved out and left everything in the house and nobody in the family wanted anything. Uh, and so Justin found this, what appeared to be an, an egg-sized piece of polished agate in um, uh, the house, and he decided to keep it. And there evidently was something attached to it. Now, the house had been full of um, crucifixes and crosses that had been left on the walls, which in and of itself may not be unusual because um, in very religious Catholic families, uh, this is often the case where uh, crucifixes guard the uh, the doorways and the walls and things like that. But sometimes if people feel that they're under a supernatural assault or they're 
guarding against something, they will put up a lot of, of uh, religious things like that. So we don't know uh, what went on in the history of the house. But something was attached to this egg, and uh, Justin took it home to where he was still living while he was cleaning out this other house, getting ready for his family to move in. And uh, he brought it into the house and, and stuck it into uh, a chest of drawers in his bedroom. And perhaps it was jostling of the article, taking it out of its environment, uh, sometimes handling something with a spirit attachment will cause uh, a spirit to break free. He'd used it uh, in a joke that he played on his children. Uh, we speculated whether that might have upset something attached to the spirit, but a negative force was attached to this stone and the first night that um, it was in Justin's bedroom after he and his wife went to sleep uh, he woke up in the middle of the night to see this black mass shoot out of the drawer where oh, the egg dear. was Oh dear! <laughs> and it went straight up in the air and then came straight down on him and landed on him with force and uh, he started to feel like he was being choked and suffocated, and also like there was some sort of gigantic python wrapped around him that was literally squeezing the breath out of him. Oh, my. Listen, Rosemary, I'm going to jump in right here. We're going we're gonna to leave the story there, and um, when we come back, we'll continue uh, to discuss this remarkable tale, just one from a, a vast collection all contained in... A Demon Haunted, True Stories from the John Zaffis Vault, co-author Rosemary Ellen Guiley, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. When in doubt, blame the government. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. We are back with Rosemary Ellen Guiley, the website visionaryliving.com. Visionaryliving.com. She joins us every month. And uh, we are here for the full hour with Rosemary to, dis to discuss her latest uh, that she has co-authored with the godfather of the paranormal, John Zaffis. This one's called Demon Haunted, True Stories from the John Zaffa's vaults. All right, so uh, where were we now, Rosemary? This um, this haunted egg, or this demon-haunted egg, uh, this in possession of this uh, gentleman, it was in his home, and um, this he placed the egg in a, a chest of drawers, and then this black entity came rising out of the drawer like, a, like smoke and then landed on him. I mean, at that point, it sounds like it's taken you know, physical form. It's, it, it landed on him with considerable heft. It did, and it felt very physical to him. This is uh, a very strange characteristic of contact with entities that uh, it, it seems to be that if they want to exert mass and force on us, it's, it's just like uh, fighting uh, a person. But uh, if they choose to be uh, immaterial, they can pass through walls. They can disappear. Your hand can go straight through them. Uh, and this entity was suffocating and squeezing Justin. What made the case even more unusual is that he felt himself levitate up off the bed, and he said his back was arched. Now, he didn't go flying up to the ceiling like 
um, you know, a Hollywood movie might portray, but he was uh, a number of inches off the bed uh, with his back arched, and he, mm. he uh, couldn't uh, cry out. His wife was asleep. Uh, this also is a common characteristic of attacks like this where um, a person on the other side of the bed is oblivious uh, to what's going on. And uh, he was praying mentally uh, to try and break the hold of this thing, praying for his wife to wake up. Uh, and she finally did. And the force broke, uh, and he fell back on the bed. She did not see him come down. She wakes up to find him on the bed gasping for air. Uh, well, Justin was so shaken, as you can imagine, by this that he knew he had to do something right away. So he gets on the phone, and friends connect him to a priest who starts praying with him uh, to uh, you know, get rid of this, this evil force. Uh, and the priest told him that he needed to get it out of the house, which is a good thing to do with an afflicted object, and that he should bury it. Now, I would have gotten in the car and taken that thing out, out into some remote area and buried it, but Justin buried it in his backyard. Oh, no. <laughs> and What was he thinking? <laughs> I, I think he was just thinking, you know, it's the middle of the night, and, you know, let's... Uh, get it out of the house at least. Uh, So he he buries it in the backyard. And also there actually uh, was a bit of wisdom to that because uh, at least he would be able to monitor it uh, to to see if, you know, the situation could be taken care of. So he's on pins and needles for several days and nothing happens. But his dog suddenly develops an interest in this buried egg and keeps digging it up. And so the dog digs it up, and Justin has to rebury it, and the dog digs it up. This goes on several times. Uh, Each time it happens, he's petrified that whatever came with this agate egg is going to attack him again. But fortunately, there are no more attacks. So Justin and his family moved into the new house, and a friend took the old house, and he was aware of the history of what had gone on and the fact that this afflicted egg was buried in the yard and uh, it's still there and uh, has not been disturbed now, and there have been no further incidents. So here we have a case of uh, something that was obviously attached to the egg, but how or why? Uh, and Justin did attempt to talk to family members of the previous owners. Nobody wanted the egg. Nobody wanted to talk to him. Nobody, they didn't want photographs that he found nothing. Hmm. There was something that had gone on in that house that uh, was, we feel, supernaturally dark. Rosemary Ellen Guiley is with us, co-author of Demon Haunted, uh, true stories from the John Zaffis vault. John Zaffis, the co-author, and of course uh, familiar to uh, those of you who have seen The Haunted Collector. Uh, in the second chapter, you and John ask, does a, mere, does a mere image of something demonic or evil have the power to haunt and possess? This is something I've long wondered. Uh, it's one of the reasons, for example, that we don't bring certain movies into the house. Uh, you know, we're not, we're not going to watch The Exorcist on, on TV in our house and so forth. I mean, that's, that's more than an image. That's a, that's a movie, moving pictures. But So I mean, what is your... What is your um, your judgment on this. Does an image of something demonic or evil 
because you have images of, uh, you know, uh, Baphomet, for example, which is a sort of a satanic symbol. You have images of Baphomet in your book. I mean, can they, do they have the power to haunt or possess? An, an image itself is probably not going to have an effect on someone, but uh, if it has been used in some sort of ritual, especially a summoning ritual, uh, then there is the potential for uh, something to be uh, attracted to an image, like a painting or a photograph, uh, the same way that an object can acquire a spirit. And in that particular uh, chapter, we um, feature a velvet painting of a grotesque demonic face that um, a family found in an attic of a house they bought. And uh, apparently the teenage children of the previous owners had gotten involved in summoning uh, because uh, around the painting were scraps of paper with spells on them and books about magic and uh, summoning spirits. And um, uh, something had, uh, and there was a little altar, but this painting had been left behind uh, when the family moved out. And um, the odd thing was that when the new family moved in, a husband and wife and uh, a little toddler, uh, it was a while before they even explored the attic. Um, I, I find that kind of a mystery myself mm-hmm. because you would think that if you bought a house, you'd, you'd want to know every nook and cranny of it. Basements and attics. Basements and attics, and, and uh, there was activity in the house, weird activity in the house. And so finally the husband goes up to the attic and he finds this painting up there, and he just knows that it's evil. Uh, so he brings in a religious group of people to pray the evil away. And while they're doing that, there's it kicks up a ruckus of activity in the house. Uh, and even the, the religious people are, are frightened of it. Um, and uh, he finally winds up getting John involved, and uh, John uh, took the painting out, and that took care of the, uh, of the activity. Uh, we've had other cases where uh, images, uh, like the Baphomet image, um, have, have been used in rituals. There have been images painted on floors, for example, ritual circles and symbols. And um, they've been in houses that people have acquired. We had one case where um, a woman thought it was cool, you know, that something of a dark ritual nature had been painted on the floor of the house she was buying. And uh, um, what a big surprise, you know, she moves in and, and there's uh, negative activity in the house. So these things can be used to attract spirit activity, but my feeling is an image in and of itself is not automatically problematic. Unless it has been used in some sort of ritual. Uh, Correct. Uh, Sometimes disturbing images, uh, for example, I would not keep images of horrible demonic uh, faces in my house. I would just find them too disturbing. And I wouldn't want that psychological upset going on because um, uh, who knows what uh, could lead from that. Uh, just getting back to John Zaffis's collection for a moment, and this is a big barn that he has on his property uh, that houses this. Um, and one day, I guess, his, his intention is to have this to be a sort of a public museum. But is there an artifact, a particular artifact in there that... Um, 
even you and John are frightened by or disturbed by? Uh, well, uh, we yes, in fact, um, there's probably more than one, but I can think of one right off off the top that every time I go there, it bothers me. And we feature it in Haunted by the Things You Love, and it's, a, it's a, uh, an idle head. And uh, here again, it's an ugly, demonic kind of idol head that probably had been used in rituals that um, a teenage boy picked up in a yard sale. He thought it was cool, as teenagers often think ugly, horrible things are. Uh, and he brought it home and suddenly developed a fascination for magic and the occult. He started getting books on summoning. Um, he spent more and more time in his room uh, doing things with this idol head. And uh, his grades started slipping at school, and it got to the point where he literally became possessed. And he confessed to his parents that... Uh, he thought that he had brought something into the house and it was possessing him and it was trying to kill him. Um, by the time John got involved uh, in that case, uh, he recommended a religious exorcism on the boy, and more than one had to be performed. Uh, when cases like that happen, the individual usually has, has to be on their guard for much of the rest of their life. Um, that that doorway doesn't come open again. It was uh, a terrifying case for the entire family. Well, when John acquires these articles, um, he binds them, um, and he has a his own ritual of prayer uh, and uh, invoking uh, angelic power and using uh, holy water and sea salt. Uh, sea salt has iron in it, and that's... Um, kind of a prophylactic against um, uh, negative spirits. And he uses those to nullify the activity of the object. And some of them he places in containers like glass reliquaries so that people don't touch them and move them around, uh, which can disturb these energetic bindings. Well, that idol head, um, it sits out in the open uh, and but it has been um, nullified, uh, but it's very disturbing to look at, and it, it, to me it feels like it still has a very weird energy field around it. And uh, John has commented that many visitors to the collection say the same thing that if they get too close to it, they start to feel uncomfortable. Uh, you give us kind of a, in the book, Demon Haunted. Uh, there's kind of a crash course in the various types of spirits and entities, and, and uh, you touch on the demonic realm and uh, jinn, of course, which you have researched and written about extensively. Uh, and here's something I didn't know, uh, that King Solomon actually summoned jinn to do his bidding. Is that in the Bible? Well, in um, uh, the Bible, these they're called spirits, that when wow. Solomon assumes the throne uh, after his father David dies, uh, God asks him what he would like, and, and God is pleased when Solomon says he wants knowledge and wisdom. You know, he doesn't want power. And so God actually bestows power on him as, as a favor then, and he gives Solomon uh, control over the spirit world. And 
in in his time and in his location, these spirits would have been jinn. Uh-huh. Uh, and they are called jinn in texts that are outside the canon. The Testament of Solomon, for example, tells the story in much more detail than the Bible, and they are called jinn. Oh, fascinating. Uh, and there are quite a few stories of uh, Solomon having uh, various interactions with the jinn. See, I always when... learn something when you come on here, uh, Rosemary. Listen, we'll take a time out when we come back. I do want to talk uh, about, this is something I didn't know about, thought forms and projections when it comes to haunted objects, people, and places. Demon Haunted, true stories from the John Zaffis vault with co-author Rosemary Ellen Guiley right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Where there's smoke, there's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Her website is visionaryliving.com, and the newest, co-authored with John Zaffis, is Demon Haunted, True Stories from the John Zaffis Vault. I wanted to ask you about thought forms and projections, because I wasn't familiar with uh, these two terms as it, as it pertains to hauntings. Uh, this is an area that I think bears more study and research in, in the paranormal Uh, which is the involvement of human beings and human consciousness in the haunting phenomena that they experience. I I don't think it's likely that thoughts and feelings from a person are going to create um, a negative entity uh, that acts out in in sinister ways, but they can certainly contribute to conditions that uh, make that very favorable. And there uh, has been evidence demonstrated in parapsychology that uh, humans can uh, create artificial entities, thought forms, literally, that, um, that can have a limited range of, of action. And uh, one of those uh, took place in Canada, in fact. Uh, I think it was in Toronto, a, a group uh, that did the Philip experiments back in the 1970s. They, uh, they uh, um, did group seances. Uh, they created a personality and named it, gave it a backstory, and then tried to get it to communicate on its own in seances and succeeded at it. Uh, but Philip never went beyond uh, the backstory that they had created for him. It never got a completely independent life of its own. And I think this demonstrates the impact that we have on an environment. Well, if, if uh, we're unhappy, depressed, uh, grieving, uh, this is very powerful emotional energy that uh, can create a force in the environment, and it can lodge in space, uh, and other people can pick up on it. And if that energy is strong enough, objects and places can, uh, can exhibit um, a kind of haunting personality. Activity can... Uh, can erupt from that. So we do contribute to uh, some of our experiences that way. Uh, and I, th- I think we need to be more aware of that when we um, when, um, look for causes for hauntings. That's interesting. A skeptic might suggest that, that these thought forms and projections and our thoughts becoming manifest in sort of poltergeist activity, etc., that might might be the explanation for 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 most, if not all, paranormal activity. That's what the skeptics might argue. 
Well, it certainly is a factor. For example, in the parapsychology literature, there's has been some study on uh, psychokinesis cases, uh, the re- recurrent uh, spontaneous um, psychokinesis, which is human-oriented uh, and not spirit-oriented, where individuals seem to be able to throw off this um, uncontrolled kind of wild emotional energy that erupts in, in such things as objects moving around, uh, even being thrown around, light bulbs exploding, uh, and uh, even physical manifestations like uh, cuts and puncture wounds. There have been um, cases uh, like that. Uh, and they seem to be traced to an individual in the household who's undergoing uh, some sort of extreme emotional period, uh, either a lot of repressed sexuality or adolescents who are going through a really rough puberty, things like that. And uh, these cases settle down when individuals settle down. Um, The question is, does this energy also attract a spirit energy that could contribute to that? Mm. Uh, And we don't know where the boundaries are. You've also written a lot about portals and how certain a landscape, certain areas can be uh, haunted, and in this case, demon haunted. But you also describe that, or in the book that these portals, there seems to be a pattern, a geophysical signature. Uh, we just got a couple of minutes here, but, but walk me through some of the geophysical signatures of, of, of what uh, these, these portals and why they may be demon haunted. They don't guarantee um, a a portal, but they can be found in various combinations in the portals that we know about, areas of high ongoing activity. Uh, One is uh, presence of some sort of um, magnetic um, stuff in the soil, like iron um, quartz, which has a mild electrical field around it, mining operations, which uh, provide a lot of tunneling below the earth, high water tables where um, soil holds a lot of water all all the time. Um, These are often configurations that we find in in portal areas where activity goes goes on on a constant level, and it includes a wide range of things like UFOs, mysterious creatures, uh, badly haunted places, bad luck, accidents, what people would call a cursed land. All right, Rosemary, we're going to take a time out, and when we come back, I want to talk about uh, some of these haunted relics from the 9-11 tragedy. Rosemary Ellen Guiley will be back to discuss more of Demon Haunted, true stories from the John Zaffis vault. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show, my name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Don't be afraid. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM740. We are back with Rosemary Ellen Guiley, VisionaryLiving.com, the website, Demon Haunted, true stories from the John Zaffis vaults. Uh, Talk to me about uh, some of these uh, demon haunted 9-11 relics. Uh, very sad and poignant stories there, and uh, John has one of these relics in his collection. It's a couple of pieces of twisted steel uh, that are in the form of a cross that were given to the partner of a victim who died in 9-11. And there were a number of these 
um, mementos that were given to survivors. Uh, now, whenever there's a tragedy like that, violent death, uh, and this was on such a mass scale, um, and it had such an impact on not only New York City and America, but the world, there was an intense generation of negative psychic energy uh, in that event. And we should not be surprised that um, bits and pieces of the rubble would have acquired some of that negative energy. Well, in, in this particular case with the, uh, the cross, uh, it was given to a man, and um, he took it home, and uh, of course it reminded him of the tragedy, so he had a projection of his own negative emotions, but uh, this object itself seemed to instill um, a very heavy, afflicted, sad, uh, dark energy into his house and uh, he kept moving it around to different locations and finally he just uh, wanted to get rid of it because um, uh, of what this symbolized and also the energy it carried and it's not very big it's just a few inches uh, in uh, width and height but it it packs um, a very strong energetic uh, punch and I do believe that these pieces of rubble carry uh, the death energy of uh, people who were killed in that tragedy. Now, this is in the shape of a cross, which begs the question, could a holy item, like a crucifix, could that be haunted? Well, we do have cases, uh, and this does shock people, we do have cases of religious objects that uh, are afflicted with uh, negative spirits that are cursed with negative energy. Um, John has crucifixes, statues of Jesus, the Virgin Mary, saints, statues of angels, uh, various uh, objects from uh, church services that were employed by people in spell casting. And they chose these objects because they associated them with conduits to the spirit world that uh, they felt that these were powerful objects and that power could be turned in a negative way, not just a positive way. Uh, and uh, I think that uh, this is entirely possible. Uh, but it even, is counterintuitive. I mean, you, you would think that these artifacts would repel, uh, uh, you know, any sort of demonic uh, entity. Well... They wind up being tools with a power in them, and quite often, uh, uh, well, some of these things have come from churches, and uh, frankly, Richard, I find the energy in a lot of churches very sad and depressed, because um, people go to church usually when they're in pain and, and sorrow and trouble, and they're looking for help, and so they bring that energy into church with them and sit in that energy while they pray and touch things, uh, and I think the objects then uh, acquire that, that heaviness. And the objects are treated as conduits to the spirit world. Uh, and so I think that in some cases it is possible to twist that power around and uh, use it for something dark. Uh, for example, one of the statues of, of Jesus that uh, John has um, 
was used for cursing, and written curses were uh, placed underneath the statue of Jesus and then prayed on uh, for bad things to happen to people. Uh, so people are often uh, shocked about that, uh, and they think that uh, religious relics couldn't possibly um, hold negative energy, uh, but they can. Uh, another case we have uh, came from um, an exorcism case that uh, actually was made into a movie. It was a haunting in Connecticut. Uh, a family moved into an old funeral parlor that um, had a, a lot of negative energy in it, and exorcisms were performed in the house. And uh, during one of them, uh, the um, uh, priest had brought in uh, some religious statues to place around the house uh, during these uh, rituals. And in one of them, uh, a statue of the Virgin Mary had its hands melted off mysteriously. Uh, and the priest wouldn't take it back. Hmm. Uh, and uh, so the object was uh, sort of spiritually cleansed, and the woman kept it for a long time, and then she, she did give it to John. But it's a statue of the Virgin Mary who has no hands, and uh, they believe that the demonic force in the house literally melted the hands off the statue. Oh, my. Uh, I would think that there would be a special place in hell reserved for someone that would use a religious artifact like that to, to uh, you know, to, to, to cast spells and so forth. It, it is very low to me, just very, very low. The lowest, absolutely. We were talking about 9-11 uh, and these relics from 9-11 that are haunted. Uh, have, you, have you tried to capture uh, EVPs in and around uh, what was Ground Zero? I did some years ago, and uh, I went down to 9-11 because I uh, live in Connecticut, so I'm not far away from New York City. And I, uh, I did go down uh, a few weeks after um, the uh, tragedy had happened, and uh, it was very active, uh, and I think it still is. Uh, even though a new tower has been built and all the rubble, of course, has been cleared away, the psychic imprint in that area um, will not go away for a long, long time, in my opinion. Now, this is an area that already had a lot of haunting activity in it, and uh, I think it's been intensified of that. But uh, people still see apparitions down there, um, when I was down there, um, even a couple of years after uh, I did make a visit, um, um, well, actually it was about five years after uh, the event, and I did still see apparitions down there. Uh, I think you saw them? You saw yes. them? Yes. What did you see, Rosemary? Uh, well, they look like um, kind of semi-transparent forms. I had the impression of, I went down with a psychic and another psychic, and I had the impression that these were uh, people who were just kind of still stuck. They were, like, confused. They didn't know what was going on. They were, um, I, I think some of them didn't, still didn't even know they were dead. Uh, just fleeting impressions. Um, I did capture some EVPs, uh, which just sounded like jumbles of voices mm -hmm. uh, and people in panic and... Um, you know, horrible sounds in the background. Uh, and uh, it, it's still very raw, and uh, people don't like to talk about it. Uh, publishers for a long time didn't want 
9-11 stuff in books. Of course, I can imagine. Um, it's, it's finally started to come out in a few books. Uh, and, um, and as I mentioned, I think that these residual energies will be around for a long time. Demon Haunted, true stories from the John Zaffis vault. Uh, after you, I mean, you're constantly immersed in this stuff, but this, uh, with this project, it seems it was a little more intense, uh, particularly when you sort of combine your experiences, your vast experiences in, in the paranormal with, with, with John's and his dealings with demonology. Um, do you find after you finish a project like this, when you are immersed in these case studies with these artifacts and relics and, and uh, images and so forth, that you have to step away and, and sort of cleanse yourself? I do, Richard, uh, and sometimes I have to do it a lot. It depends on, um, you know, the, the kinds of, of cases. Uh, in uh, doing Demon Haunted, a lot of it was compilation, of course, from cases that had already been closed. Um, some were still going on. But even so, you know, when you're dealing with, with these kinds of afflictions that people have suffered, uh, you do have to open up your consciousness to um, that energy and to uh, a certain level of the spirit world. And uh, I, I often need a break after that. In fact, there are certain things that I will not work on at night. And uh, also when I'm working on certain topics having to do with the demonic and the gin, uh, I usually burn a black candle uh, and... Black absorbs negative energy, and I will do extra prayers in my home altar and keep a black candle burning uh, and not do certain things in the middle of the night <laughs> or even late at night because the energy just gets very strange, and um, that's when the spirit world is more active. And I, I think that um, working on these, it, it attracts attention uh, and spirits come around and they want to know what you're doing and look over your shoulder. Uh, we just have a couple minutes left, but just give us a taste of um, a, a part of the book. It's one of the uh, the last, I think it is the last chapter, and that is John Zaffis, again, his uncle, Ed Warren, uh, a very famous uh, demonologist uh, who passed away in 2006, and, and uh, Ed has been reaching out to his nephew, John. Tell us a little bit about that. Uh, Ed passed away in 2006, and he uh, immediately started communicating to people around John that he had messages for John. And uh, uh, this intensified last year after John had a heart attack, and uh, he got rushed to the hospital and had a stent put in. And that seemed to open him up even more. Uh, and Ed has been quite talkative, uh, not only to John, but to me, to people, other investigators, and he, he's always talking about messages involving books, files, letters, and that it's important for John to pay attention. Uh, we've not been able to locate uh, any books, files, and letters that we think uh, are literal things. We've been wondering if these are uh, symbolic things that he's trying to talk about uh, related to John's, the direction of John's career, and uh, we're speculating perhaps even the future of, of demonology, because Ed was quite concerned about 
um, some of the things he saw in the field, uh, people with uh, very little knowledge and background passing themselves off as experts and creating more problems than they solve. And this is an ongoing story that uh, is still open, and we, uh, we expect to pick it back up for uh, book three. Uh, uh, an entire book about the communications from uh, the late Ed Warren to, to John and yourself. Well, at least an, another good chapter in it. All right. Well, look forward to that. Rosemary, always a pleasure. Congratulations on Demon Haunted, True Stories from the John Zaffis Vault. I appreciate your time. Always a pleasure. And uh, same with me, Richard. Thank you so much. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, VisionaryLiving.com. That's it for us. My thanks to uh, Ian Robertson, Albert Vinzel, of course, and uh, Ryan White. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.